0: Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Professor Alistair McGrath, Professor of Science and Religion at Oxford University. Alistair McGrath, welcome to Facing the Canon.
1: It's really good to be here.
0: Thank you, Alistair. I'm delighted to have you uh, on the programme. Uh, We've talked before on a previous interview of Facing the Canon, and uh, I may not cover some of those questions, but anyone wants to view that, you can. But um, let's start from the beginning. You're from Ireland.
1: I'm from Ireland, yes. I was born there in 1953, which, of course, is the year of the coronation of our Queen.
0: Yes, and you grew up... There were troubles... uh, That's right. The
1: troubles began really in the late 60s when I was at uh, high school studying science. But it actually had a very big impact on me. I think one of the things it really did was to confirm my growing sense of atheism. You know, if there was no religion, there'd be no religious violence. I know it's very simple, but that's the way I thought back in those distant days.
0: Yeah. So you you actually, one particular day or a season of your life, decided that you
1: would call yourself an atheist? I did. I think there were two things that really moved me in that direction. One was that um, I was studying science. I loved science. It was really wonderful. But I had this idea that you couldn't be a scientist and a religious believer. So uh, I just said, right, I am a scientist, therefore I'm not a religious believer. But also, as I was saying, this was uh, the time when the, the troubles were beginning in Northern Ireland. And that seemed to me to indicate that religion was actually the cause of violence. So two reasons love of science and the growing sense religion leads to violence.
0: Now it, in Ireland of course uh, there's a lot of church. Um, how did family react to you stating that you're an atheist?
1: I think they just thought I was going through a phase or that that, that I was sort of making a protest against something. But actually, I I was taking the view quite seriously that atheism was the only option for a thinking person. And I became, I have to say, a rather dogmatic atheist. In fact, when I read Richard Dawkins these days, I get all nostalgic because that's the way I used to be when I was 16. You know, if, if you were a religious believer, you were mad or bad or sad or possibly even all three. Yes. And it just seemed obvious to me. So I could see, I couldn't understand what religion was, and it seemed to me to be wrong. So I had no interest in it whatsoever.
0: You ended up going to Oxford. Um, You studied chemistry. Um, Now, while you were at Oxford, you had an epiphany of some kind.
1: Well, that's right. I think think university is a time when very often you begin to rethink things. And actually, before I went to Oxford, I I was beginning to rethink. I mean, what actually is the evidence for atheism? I mean, that was a hard question to answer. And actually, isn't atheism really a a belief? You know, I believe there is no God, but I can't prove it. And so I was beginning to think maybe this is not as straightforward as I thought. But then I went to Oxford And one of the things I discovered was that Oxford was full of people who were Christians and who had thought through, for example, the relationship between their science and their faith. And as I talked to them, I began to realise I have got this wrong, that um, Christianity is much more interesting and engaging than I had thought. I began to realise I had rejected the caricature, not the real thing. And I realised I need to rethink in a big way.
0: Uh, uh, From starting at Oxford to professing and believing? What was the
1: time scale? It was quite short, really. I think that uh, I went up to Oxford in October 1971, in effect feeling I was on the cusp of something. Actually, you know, I, I was going to have to make some decisions. When I went home <clears throat> that Christmas, I was a Christian. Now, if you were to say to me, be precise, I couldn't be. Well, I can say at some point there was a moment of transition, a moment of epiphany. But basically something happened that made me realise everything was different. And it changed your belief and behaviour? I think it changed my belief. It also changed the way in which I saw things. If you like, it was all about... um, uh, like a mental inversion or, or seeing things in new ways. If someone turned the light on, you suddenly realised things were not what you thought they were. You could see them for the very first time. And, and one of the people who helped me explore that was C.S. Lewis, who used this imagery of the sun rising on the landscape. You can see things clearly. I thought that's what this is all about. And I also discovered C.S. Lewis was really interesting. So that was a lifelong friendship I began
0: Yes, well, and he was from Ireland as well. He was. And now you've written a number of books on C.S. Lewis. Uh,
1: is it four books on C.S. Lewis? I've written several books on C.S. Lewis, yes. simply because he is so interesting. Uh, and I find Lewis is really good in helping me grow in my faith because my, my poor Christian friends, I would ask them all these questions like, what, what exactly is the Trinity? And they would give me um, answers that they struggled with. And I eventually realised, you know, I need to look for some help. And someone said, will you please read C.S. Lewis? Um, so I did. And it was like um, I discovered a soulmate, somebody who, in effect, was asking the questions I was asking and giving me answers. And it was really wonderful. We all, I think, in our journey of faith, um, need travelling companions. And yes. I discovered Lewis as a travelling companion who is still with me to this day.
0: You're, you're quite unusual in the sense that um, you ended up studying science, science. Uh, a doctorate in science but then you also did theology and got a doctorate in theology and your current position at Oxford is what's your current
1: well they call it the Andreas Idrias Professorship of Science and Religion yeah which is um, quite remarkable it's remarkable and I never expected that to happen I mean I I still look back in my career and think how did that happen but it did and and I'm very
0: happy (laughs) I know and uh, your um, latest book Through a Glass Darkly, Journeys Through Science, Faith and Doubt. How did you come across, well, how did you end up with this title?
1: Well, I love reading St. Paul and Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 does talk about this whole idea of seeing through a glass darkly and giving us a promise that one day we'll see God face to face. But for the time being, we see things as if through a half silvered mirror or through a dirty windowpane and yes. not clearly. And for me, that is such a perceptive comment because we journey in faith. We do not see the full big picture. Things are a bit fuzzy and out of focus, but we know there's something there and we keep going. Going. And that's very important to me. So, so
0: you're a scientist, you're a theologian. Um, so, how do you see things? How do you understand things? How do you interpret things, holding those two together?
1: I think what I tend to think of it is like this. There is science, which is great, and there's theology, which is great. And if you like, it's like a set of spectacles that gives you stereoscopic vision. In other words, science is very, very good at answering some questions like how things work. But then there are deeper questions we want to ask, like what what is good or um, what is meaning? What's life all about? Science tells us how things work. Theology helps us figure out what they mean. And to me, that is very important. These are, if you like, different parts of a big picture, but we need both those parts together.
0: Now, you obviously are convinced that science and faith are compatible, where some people often say they're not
1: compatible. That was what I thought when I was 16, that in effect, uh, science and religion were incompatible. Now, they are different. Let's agree on that. But here I quote Albert Einstein, who's my favorite scientist, I think. Einstein said, look, um, in life we have science, we have ethics, we have religion, we have politics. They're different, but they all matter. And really the challenge is to see how each of these builds up to give us an overall picture of things. Each is part of of a greater whole. I think that's the key thing. They're different, yes, but they're part of this bigger picture. and We need them all if we're going to lead a meaningful life. So I do not see science and religions being incompatible. And um, basically they're different and they illuminate different parts of the landscape of life.
0: Now, sometimes you, you, you hear uh, of, of uh, someone saying, oh, I don't believe because I am a scientist. And, and using that as like proof not to believe in God. Um, but why is it that so many, it appears, scientists have got a limited or they're blinkered. They've got a limited understanding of
1: faith. I think many scientists would say you only believe what you can prove. Yeah. And I'm prepared to respect that. What I'm going to say, though, is that the, all the big questions in life are things that lie beyond proof what is good? What is the meaning of life? Um, These are very big questions and science can't answer them and nobody can give an answer that can be proven to be right. So whether I'm an atheist or a Christian, if I take a view on, for example, what's the meaning of life, I'm doing so as a matter of belief because I cannot prove it's right. I think one of the things I'd want to say to a scientist in that position is, look, you will find you hold views on ethical questions or political questions. And if I were to press you very hard, you would not be able to prove that they were right. If you stand by your own criteria, you therefore can't believe them. But you know that you're entitled to. So in fact, can you see that really it's not as straightforward as you're thinking? All the big questions in life lie beyond proof. Therefore, either you say, I can't believe any of them, Or you say, right, I can take positions on what is good, what the meaning of life is, and realise that we have to go beyond facts to make sense of life. What is
0: it that convinces you about faith
1: in Jesus? I think that's a very important question. And one of the things that really helped me in my journey towards Christianity was this growing realisation of the significance of Christ. Let me try and explain when I was young, I thought, there's God, God's up in heaven somewhere. Yes. I'm down here, but if he's up there, what difference does that make? I mean, it, it, it's like someone living in, in out of Mongolia. Might, they might as well not be there for all the difference it makes to me. And then at Oxford, discovering this idea of the incarnation, that God enters into our world in Christ to redeem us in history, in Christ. I suddenly realised this is a game changer. If that is right, to have seen Christ is to have seen God. It's about a God who comes to where we are to bring us to where he is. And that suddenly made everything so much clearer. So if you like, that was a, a transition point, a turning point in my own spiritual journey.
0: You would say, Alistair, that, that Christianity, there, there's facts that support it. Why do so many people ignore the facts and ignore the evidence?
1: I think many people um, believe what they want to believe. Um, Sigmund Freud talks about wish fulfillment. Yes. And When I was younger, I thought wish fulfillment is only for religious people. They invent God to m- make things up because that's the way they want it to be. Having lived many years since then and read many books, I've realised that atheists do exactly the same thing. We don't want there to be a God. I mean, there, there are many philosophers who, like Thomas Nagel, for example, a very well-known American philosopher, who says, look, I do not want there to be a God. I want there to be uh, atheism. So I'm going to spend the rest of my life proving atheism is right. In other words, the wish came first, then the intellectual case for that. And what I want to say is that atheism, in many ways, is the response of someone who says, I do not want there to be a God. I want to be in charge. I want to invent my own values. I do not want anyone to interfere with me. It's a belief system. It's a wish fulfilment. Sure.
0: Well, we, we're living in very interesting times. That, that word interesting is quite loaded, isn't it? <laughs> interesting times. And this year will be hugely memorable for all of us globally. Um, there's a big emphasis, um, particularly, what well, every day, you know, the science, the latest, the science, and, and then we're going to do this because of the science, because of the science. Okay, what do you think God's saying? What do you think, wh- why has God allowed this to happen?
1: That's a great question, and it's a very big question. Let me give you a very brief answer, which I think is important. I think we're being taught. We have to recognize our mortality and our limits. Those are both very important points. I think the COVID crisis has brought home to us we aren't in charge of things. Actually, we have to recognize our limitations, that there are certain things we just don't seem to be able to do. And that's a huge challenge to many people who think in very technocratic ways we can sort everything out. We're confronted with something that's bigger than us. And it makes us realise that we are not as competent and powerful as we thought we were. And also it's brought home to us the importance of mortality. In other words, we're suddenly realising that none of us actually is safe. And we have to then begin to live life in that shadow of mortality. And of course, that is a very Christian theme. It's about living in hope, not meaning everything will get better, but rather even though things are difficult and Really, I struggle sometimes to make sense of things that God is with us. He is the shepherd who journeys with us, even when we travel through the valley of the shadow of death. And we need to hold on to that in this very difficult time. Now, one of the
0: areas that you've um, uh, researched, studied and taught natural theology. uh, What is that?
1: Natural theology is this idea that somehow there's a link between the world of nature that we see around us and God. And it's obviously a very contested area. How do we make that relationship? But if you want a biblical text, think of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And for me, it's very important. It means when I go for a walk in the beautiful countryside, I, I say, what a wonderful view. But then I say, And, of course, it points me towards God. In fact, the beauty of nature is a reminder of the even greater beauty of God. And
0: some might say um, God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. So don't worry about looking after this earth. What would you say about that?
1: Well, I'm sure he's going to do that. That's right. But in the meantime, we're here. And this is um, God's creation. It's been entrusted to us. We need to look after it. And as I look at the beauty of nature, I sometimes feel very, very distressed when I see that beauty being destroyed. And I think we need to, in effect, take responsibility for certainly living here. That's very important, but also taking care of this. The idea that we have been entrusted by God with his creation. That's a real challenge to me. How do I live responsibly to try and minimize the damage I do To this wonderful creation that we're part of.
0: Yes. Interesting with your book, um, um, Alistair, uh, Journeys Through um, Science, Faith, but you added the word and doubt. And the reason you added the word
1: doubt? Is because it's important. Let me explain. Um, When I was an atheist, I took the view that in effect you only believe things you could prove. It's very simple. But the problem is that's a very narrow world. If you limit yourself to the world of things you can absolutely prove, then you're talking about things like two and two make four. And, you know, we need, we need more than that yes. to live a meaningful life. And what I'm saying is that we have to realise that we live in a world where the, whether you're an atheist or a Christian, you end up believing things you cannot prove to be right. Now, I'm a Christian and I know I cannot prove there is a God, but my heart and my mind scream out, this is right. Yes. Uh, and I believe even though I know I can't prove. And my job is to talk to other people and see if they might discover this as I've discovered it, but also to realise that actually I have to live with this state of not being able to prove. But then I turn to my atheist friends and say, you can't prove this either. Yes. And one of the paradoxes we have is we very often think of doubt as something that affects religious people. No, it affects atheists as well, yes. because they know they cannot prove their core beliefs. That's worth thinking about.
0: So, so during the time that you've known the Lord, and you follow Jesus, have there been moments where you've doubted?
1: I think there have been. I think there have been genuine moments where I've doubted in the sense that um, I don't really understand this. Does this mean I have bought into something that is wrong? Or does it mean I've bought into something very, very big, and I have not yet fully understood? it? Uh, an image I find helpful is that, is that um, I think my conversion is landing on the, the beach of an island of faith. It's big. And I begin to explore and realise how great and complex it is, but needs to be explored. And very often doubt arises because we don't really understand properly. And that's why it's so important to grow in our faith, to begin to understand what it's all about. And that to me is a very important part of the journey of faith, growing and understanding about what the Christian faith is all about. So your encouragement
0: to any viewer that, that's battling with doubt at this moment, you know, m- maybe they've got a very sick child or maybe they've lost their spouse and it, it feels like wintertime and they're doubting the presence or the peace or the love of God. What would you
1: say to them? I've been there too. So was C.S. Lewis, think of the death of his wife. And what C.S. Lewis found very, very helpful when he was deeply moved by the death of his wife from cancer was to think about Christ dying on the cross. One of the thoughts Lewis had was, look, my wife is dying of cancer. I wish I could take on that suffering instead of her. And then realising this is what God did on the cross. And so Lewis came to see the image of a suffering Christ as in effect a reassurance that God is there, even in times of suffering, in times of bewilderment. And we need to hold on to that. We don't fully understand, but we can trust we're not on our own. God, the shepherd, is with us even in that journey through those dark places.
0: Now, you're a professor of um, science, religion, um, at the best university in the whole world. It was voted again number one for several years running. So um, you're an academic. I'm, I'm intrigued, Alistair. Tell us about a little bit about your own devotional life. How do you read the Bible devotionally and personally? Do you dissect it? Or how does, you know, you're a scientist. How do you you read it and how do you apply it?
1: At the moment, I'm reading um, Mark's gospel and I'm reading it in company with um, someone who I knew is now dead, but he wrote a commentary on it. And what I'm doing is I'm imagining myself reading this text, but reading it in conversation with my friend's book, my friend. And he helps me to see things. We're, if you like, we're having almost like a conversation about what's there, how this helps us to grow in our faith. That's why Bible says so helpful, because you help others, but they help you as well. So in effect, when I'm reading the Gospels, I'll step into the picture. I'll imagine I am there. I'm seeing these things. I'm thinking about them. I'm taking them in. I'm absorbing them and asking how does it help me understand who Christ is, the difference he makes. And it's a wonderful, immersive experience. So it's one of those things that um, I think you can read the Bible in two ways. You can sip it as if it was a fine vintage wine, very, very slowly. Or you can drink it like a glass of water on a hot day, you know. And sometimes I savour, sometimes I drink deeply. But either way, it refreshes you.
0: And your prayer life, how do you personally engage with God?
1: My prayer life is not as good as it should be. I think it's partly because... Um I have so many friends who are in difficulty that I spend most of my prayer life talking, in effect, saying, There's this this person, what do I do? (laughs) There's this person, how do I help? You know, where in effect you're really asking for guidance about how you can do things. I think that that is something that's very important because there is a sense in which we feel burdened by other people's problems. That's very important. And yet there's a sense in which we can share that burden. And prayer is a very important way of beginning to enter into God's presence with these concerns on your mind. And maybe you get discernment of what you could be doing or maybe in effect you feel that there's something else that could be done but it's a very important way i think of um how should i put this of ensuring that you don't disengage from reality but at the same time ask god what you should be doing
0: now th- there's many uh, people like yourself um alistair you know you're you're an academic it feels like um there's a real battle with the world there's a battle with us communicating the truth of Christianity, Uh, do you feel the church um, isn't helping people in their journey of faith, but sometimes hindering them?
1: I'm sure the church is trying to help, but I sometimes wonder if it's doing it as effectively as it could. Well, when I was an atheist, I had many questions about Christianity, and I know that those questions are still there in our culture. By becoming a Christian, I found answers to those questions, and I'm very happy to share those answers. But I sometimes feel that the church isn't really helping ordinary Christians to answer the questions that their culture is asking. I think they, we really need help there. And there are very good answers that can be given. And what I'm worried about, really, is that there are a number of people, myself, Tom Wright, John Lennox we could add many more names to yes. that list, who are trying to help but the sense in which all of us are just ordinary Christians trying to be helpful. We really need the, the churches to, in fact, take this on and equip people to answer the good questions that their friends are asking.
0: And so for those of us, um, Alistair, who love Jesus, follow Jesus, um, and we're struggling with questions, um, what's the best way forward for us?
1: I think... It's natural to have these questions. And I think that very often people are frightened about questions. What I want to say to is, don't be. Um, For example, supposing somebody asks you a question you can't answer, well, they might say, well, look, why do Christians believe that Christ is the Son of God? I mean, you might say, oh, my goodness, this is a threat. No, don't see it like that. See it as an opportunity. They're interested. Now, you may not be able to answer it yourself fully, but you might try. And that will help you. Next time they ask that question, or you might say, oh, I read a very good book by C.S. Lewis. He answers that question. and Let me tell you what he says. So yes. what I'm trying to say is that growing in your faith is a very good way of helping people who ask you these questions. There are answers. I assure you, discover them. It will help you grow. but It will also help those you're talking to.
0: At Oxford University, how do your uh, colleagues um, view
1: you? I'm intrigued. Well, I think that they're all very polite, of course. They might not say this directly. I think some think you're a little bit strange, aren't you? Or some might say, well, you know, you have this this, um, mad enthusiasm for the Christian faith. Others would say, no, you've seen something. And the job of a good writer is to say, I have seen something and I want you to see it as well. And in many ways, what I'm doing as a writer is to say, let me try and help you see what I've discovered. And maybe you can discover it as well.
0: And, uh, you know, I said earlier on, you're a little bit unusual, you know, in, d- in the sense that you're a scientist, you're a theologian, uh, but you're also a reverend. And it- it's-, it's like you are endeavouring to live out this faith and communicate it to ordinary people. Um, what we- I-, I remember reading about when you were a young minister of, um, in Nottingham, actually, uh, where you know trying to communicate what you believed um, and that's what we're trying to do today and um, There is a struggle, isn't there? There's a
1: struggle there. And I think we we all have to try and think how best we can do this. Yes. I remember when I started preaching uh, afterwards, some of my congregation said to me, well, we thought you were trying to say something very important, but we weren't quite sure what it was. (laughs) And I I began to realise I've got a lot to learn. But what I want to say to anybody watching this is, look... um, you can learn how to explain why your faith matters to you. You can say, here's what I found. Maybe this will help you. I want to emphasize all of us can tell the story of our faith and that may help others discover what we have found and maybe make them think, I'd like to know more.
0: Alistair McGrath, thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. It's been my pleasure, thank you. Wow. How inspiring was that? I am truly um, always inspired reading uh, Alistair McGrath and uh, just hearing him. And, and it, it kind of gives me a real faith lift, um, knowing that someone like Alistair um, was an atheist, became a believer in Jesus, uh, is a professor of science and religion at Oxford University, um, If you're grappling with questions, um, if you love science and faith, uh, can I recommend Alistair McGrath's uh, new book? Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. I hope it's given you a faith lift. Please join us again.
2: You've been listening to the J. John podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, Visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. Heroes of the Faith is a new podcast by J. John and his wife, Killy. Sign up today to hear the incredible stories of some of J. John's heroes of the Christian faith and the lessons we can learn from their lives. Hear about Harriet Tubman, who after escaping from a life of slavery in the USA, went on to rescue over 300 other slaves. John Bunyan, whose book The Pilgrim's Progress has sold more copies than any other book other than the Bible and inspired millions of people around the world. George Muller, who helped tens of thousands of children whilst leaving a lasting legacy of trust in God's provision. Ever wondered who saved more lives than anyone else on Earth? Listen to the story of Edward Jenner, the Christian doctor who discovered vaccination. With a new story to be told each week, sign up now to hear Jay John's Heroes of the Faith